Good morning. Uh, my name is Tom, if you don't know me. Excuse me for five seconds. I've just got to set up my final piece of technology. Apologies. Too much tech. <laughs> Love a bit of tech. And then I forgot my water. Hold on, I promise I'm nearly ready. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Richard said time's up. Oh, okay. Um, good morning. It's a joy to, um, to be with you this morning. Uh, it's really a particular joy to be with you here at the 11.30 because I, I was trying to remember the last time I preached here and I, it must have been a, a while ago. I tend to do sort of a bit more at the six and a, a little bit at the eight. Um, so it's, it's a particular joy to be joining you this morning at the 11.30. Now, recently um, I took on a new project. I'm not really one for jigsaw puzzles and I haven't got the patience for gardening. Uh, but I, I do love Lego. don't know if anybody else does. I love a bit of Lego. A couple of weeks ago, I managed to get hold of um, a Lego model of the McLaren Formula One car. So it's very, very intricate. I'll show you a little picture of the... This is me kind of gleefully being ready to, to start it. Um, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's made up of 1,432 pieces. No detail has been spared. It's got a six-cylinder engine with moving pistons. Um, it's got proper steering and suspension. So you can see me here right at the start of the build. Instructions open with hundreds of tiny pieces in front of me with a look of delight on my face and a glass of wine next to me for kind of full relaxation mode. Although that doesn't tend to help with the build, I find. Um, <clears throat> And it's been brilliant fun. That was three weeks ago. It's been brilliant fun to build over the last um, three weeks. But actually, despite the look on my face there, the early stages were really tough and they weren't actually so enjoyable. I didn't have a sense of which bit I was making or, or what was going where because I was constructing what's called the, like the chassis of the car, which is the bit that's sort of ultimately invisible. It's the structure of the car that everything else goes onto. But as I continued through the build, I realized that the invisible bit was actually the most important bit. If I just skipped ahead at the beginning without paying attention to the detail, then the end result would not have been possible. So have a look at the finished model on Friday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That was three weeks' work on Friday. Uh, it was all finished. I was going to bring it here this morning to put on a little plinth or something, but I thought that would be a bit much. And I was, if I'm honest, I was a little bit worried it would fall apart or something like that. Um, but none of what um, would, none of what was possible, none of what was in the finished item would have been possible without what went on underneath. The wheels wouldn't turn, the front wing wouldn't clip on, and the car would just fall apart if I hadn't paid attention in those initial stages. All the exciting stuff is on the outside, but the real power is on the inside. And I'm going to suggest that gives us a way into our passage today. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a part of this kind of church that we heard described in our reading. The radical generosity where everyone is looked after, everyone agrees all the time and the church grows. 
Well, today I want to suggest that just like my Lego car, it's not really about what goes on on the outside because there's something that's going on in the inside of this church that's even more exciting and it gives it the power to do what it does. It drives it forward. So this morning, I want to encourage you, maybe imagine yourself in like a car repair garage. We're going to be stripping away the outer bits of the car piece by piece until we can kind of get under the bonnet uh, so we can see really what drives this car. And we're going to be in, in the text today. So I encourage you, if you do have a Bible, keep it open. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, um, do just kind of wave a hand or something. I'm going to be putting some of the key verses on the screen behind me, so it will be coming up. But we are going to be in this text this morning. I'm sure um, Roger would be happy to get anybody a Bible that needs one, so do wave. Oh, just one at the front. Thanks. Thanks, Roger. So the first thing uh, the first outer bit of this car, this church that we come across this morning, is that they are a community of unity. Community of unity. It says so in the opening sentence. It says in verse 32 that all the believers were one in heart and mind. I don't know if you noticed that at the beginning of the reading. All the believers were one in heart and mind. So clearly, everybody's happy. Everybody's in agreement. There are no debates and committee meetings. Every single vote is always unanimous in this church. That would be a true miracle. And actually, that's not what is going on here. This not, um, there's not about like a miraculous kind of consensus on everything. We're not supposed, as the church, we're not supposed to necessarily agree on all the finer details. And we can say that with confidence because the writer uh, Luke, who's writing in this particular part of the Bible in Acts, he uses a phrase here that is designed to evoke something very specific in the minds of his readers. And we can miss it unless we look carefully. You'll notice that in this first sentence, the writer says that all the believers were, in, were one in heart and mind. And the actual word that we read there for mind, the Greek word there is psyche. And when we hear psyche, we think of things like psychology, psychologists. You know, it all, in our modern English, it, has, it associates with the mind. But actually, that's not what it meant in the context here. Luke is talking about, it translates better as your soul. So it's not necessarily the intellectual part of your mind. He's saying that the inmost part of their being, that's what he's trying to get at. So if we read the text in that way, it takes on a slightly different tone, doesn't it? He's saying all the believers were one in heart and soul. And Luke is pairing these two words together quite deliberately because he knows that every single Jewish person reading the text at this time would have learned the great commandment by heart. You might know the great commandment because Jesus talks about it. And the great commandment was this from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So by saying that the believers were united in one heart and soul... Luke is telling us something really specific here. He isn't saying that there was unanimous agreement over every area of church life. That would just be impossible. It's not going to happen. No, he is telling us that the church was a community that was united together under the authority of God, just like in that Deuteronomy verse. Even though they may not have agreed on everything, they were able to stay united because they were pursuing the same thing together. 
If you think about it, all of us in this room probably have different views about all kinds of different things from, you know, I don't know, how we take communion to the songs we sing when we worship. But it doesn't mean that we're not united. We can disagree with things intellectually while setting aside our reservations in pursuit of something bigger. So it's not just about intellectual agreement and it can't come from human obedience. It has to come from submitting to one another under God's authority. So coming back to the picture of the car, it's a little bit like the suspension, which kind of smooths out all the bumps in the road, okay? When we love the Lord, we love each other, especially when we disagree. And the text is telling us that we're called to be a community of unity. So that's the first outward thing that we see in the early church, a community of unity. The second thing, they were a community of surrender. Look at how the passage continues. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, once again, Luke is um, telling us, he's seeking to communicate something really specific here. And again, this links back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Listen to what God tells the people of Israel in Deuteronomy as they were about to enter the promised land. This is what God says. There need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. Do you see then that Luke is showing us that the church is meant to be the fulfillment of this promise? He's saying that within the church family, God has given enough resources Um, For everybody's needs to be met, he's given enough time, he's given enough money, he's given enough food and housing. And it's down to the church to make sure that everybody is looked after. Now, let's be really clear here. This isn't some kind of early form of communism. Um, It wasn't a condition of church membership just to kind of suddenly give up every single thing that you own. That wasn't how this worked. Notice that the text... um, doesn't say, here we go, I'll put it on the screen again for you, the text doesn't say no one had any possessions, does it? Really clear. But it does say no one claimed any of their possessions as their own. So in law, they still owned all their stuff, but it was more like, it was something to do with the the heart and the soul, back to that idea again. In their heart and their soul, all their things were at the disposal of the community for everybody to benefit from. So it was not so much about giving up possessions. It was more about giving up control. In other words, this was about surrender. This was a church that was ready to respond when its members were in need. If you were able to help somebody by selling something and giving the money away, you you just kind of did it. It wasn't through compulsion, but it was a voluntary thing. It was a joyful thing. Tom Wright says in the book that we're following as a church, um, the Acts for Everyone book, he says this, what you do with the money and possessions declares loudly what sort of a community you are. And the statement made by the early church's practice was clear and definite. It's challenging, isn't it? 
I preached at the 9.30 recently on a, on a different passage, actually. Uh, and I shared about a time when the church community really provided for my family's needs. And I want to just mention it again today because I think it's a really helpful example. While I was training for ordination a few years ago at our previous church, um, we had some really tough times financially. That wasn't because our church weren't paying us enough, but just the way that kind of ordination training works is it's not, um, you know, you don't, you don't get paid that much. So um, it's, just, it's just a season where things were quite tight for us. We were a family of four. Um, Megan, my wife, wasn't working. And month to month, we were really kind of struggling to, to make ends meet. And a, a couple from, from that church heard that we were having a difficult time and they just dropped some money into our bank account completely sort of unasked for. Our dishwasher broke and someone just gave us a new one. Another person decided to buy us a holiday Somebody even paid for our light bulbs to be replaced when they, you know, when they died because we couldn't afford to replace the lighting in our house. Now, I, I don't know what the circumstances were of each of those people who provided for us. I don't know what their bank balance was. But it spoke volumes about their willingness to surrender control over their money, um, over what they owned to bless others in the church. And it was such a huge blessing to us. I wonder, how do we feel about our money and possessions? Do we view them as ours to do with as we see fit? Or are we ready to surrender them to bless others who need them? Because surrendering control here is a little bit like the steering mechanism on the car. It points the front wheels. It controls the direction of travel and it keeps the car kind of going where it's meant to. Maybe sometimes... I know I do, um, hold on a little bit too tightly. Now, these things are all well and good. We can have the best suspension in the world and the best steering, but if there's nothing driving the car, then we are going nowhere. We need to know where the power is coming from. So how can we hope to be a community of unity and a community of surrender? Well, it's all because we are defined in this text as a community of resurrection community of resurrection because you know ultimately this is always about Jesus and this is so evident when we look at what drove the early church in this passage it's right there in verse 33 of the reading it says with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus only thing that gave them the ability to function in this radically united and generous way was the resurrection power of Jesus. That's where their hope is, and that is where their power comes from. How else could they have grace enough to forego their own preferences for the sake of others? How else could they have confidence enough to relinquish control over their own possessions? It can only be because they know that their selfish desires have been crucified with Jesus and they've been born again into his resurrection power. The Apostle Paul, a little bit later on in the New Testament, reminds us that when we become believers, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead comes to live in each of us. That's where our power comes from. 
And here's the really amazing thing in this passage. The power of the resurrection doesn't stop there because if we look again at that verse, verse 33, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify. You see, because the hope of the early church was in the resurrection, they were empowered to live in this amazing, generous way. But because they lived in this generous way, that gave more power to their testimony. It pointed people to the God who surrendered himself to injustice. It pointed people to the God who gave up everything for those he loved. It pointed people to the God who promises a future that lasts forever. You see, by being a community of unity and a community of surrender, we are showing the hope of the resurrection to the world. A car without an engine is going nowhere. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our engine. It drives everything we do because it renews us from within, giving us victory over the sins of our past and victory over the death in our future. It frees us from the petty cares of the world, things like personal preference and money. The exciting stuff is on the outside, but the power is on the inside. So this isn't about us being more united or us being better at surrendering. If we read this text and think that by somehow trying harder, we're going to get better at this, we're going to be a sharing church, then actually we miss it. No, this text tells us that if we root ourselves in Jesus' resurrection, that is when we start to see things shift. That is when we'll see more of God's power at work among us. That is when we'll see lives changed through acts of generosity and love. That is when we will see more and more and more people coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And that's what we all want, right? That's why we're doing this series in Acts. So today, as I finish, I want to ask a question of all of us. I include myself in this. How confident are we of the resurrection? How much do we trust that that is where our hope comes from? Am I willing to give up my preferences? Am I willing to surrender control of what I own? for the blessing of the whole church. Because if I'm not, there's only one way this changes. I need more of that resurrection power at work in me. Remember, the exciting stuff is on the outside, but the power is on the inside. If we want to be this beautifully finished car, this incredibly perfectly functioning community that we read about in Acts 4, then we need to be ready to strip away everything on the outside to make sure that our power, our drive, comes from the right place. This morning, we're called to be a community of resurrection. So I want to ask, will you ask God to fill you with that resurrection power again?
I wasn't going to say this, but I was struck by um, the words of one of the hymns that we sang, uh, the second hymn, actually. It was the penultimate verse. I just really like to just read, read those words um, as I finish and maybe just leave a moment of quiet. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. Amen.